you know, as a revenue operator, the way I think about my job is how do we just stay in the chaos of hypergrowth? We're building this revenue engine for a $100 million business, not a $10 million business. Dini Mehta was incredibly successful as the CRO of Lattice. She took the company from $3 million to over $100 million in ARR when she left. Dini and I also happened to go way back. We worked together for three years at Lattice, where she ran sales and I ran marketing. So I thought she'd be the perfect guest for our new show. Welcome to the first episode of Grow and Tell, the show where we tell the growth stories of revenue leaders behind successful companies. I'm your host, Alex Krakow. Dini's entire career has been a series of growth stories. At QuantCast, she went from AE to sales manager. At Drawbridge, she went from the first sales hire to the VP of sales. And then at Lattice, she went from VP to CRO. Today, I'll be talking to Dini about the early days of Lattice, including our go-to-market strategy, how we moved up market, and how we collaborated across sales and marketing. Plus, Dini gives some advice on how to grow from an AE to a CRO. I hope you enjoy the conversation. So let's start with what Lattice was like when you joined. Can you paint a picture for us? How big was the sales team and what was the starting ARR? Gosh, taking it back to June 2018. Yeah, when I joined, the sales team was seven people. I want to say four AEs, maybe five AEs, couple BDRs. I think overall go to market, cross marketing sales success. We were what, like 15, 20 people. It was definitely the smallest company I joined, like 3 million in ARR. And I joined in summer, which are typically slow sales months, which, you know, remind yourself that summer's going to be slow. Because when I joined, it was like, you know, first three months, we were, the goal was to like grow revenue. And we were seeing a little bit of like stalling in our new business growth. I'm sure you remember those days. Uh, (laughs) Uh, But it was fun. I mean, you know, I'd never, I came from a background of doing enterprise sales, mostly selling to Fortune 500 marketing orgs. And so it was a new environment, which I was excited about. And as a, When I was interviewing and talking to Lattice, it looked much bigger from the outside Mm. to thanks to the billboards and all the work you did. Good marketing, you know? Yeah. (laughs) And coming in, I was like, ooh, this is early. Yeah. Cause I hadn't managed like a sales rep in a couple of years prior to that. So I was like, okay, go back to your, you know, flex brain, start to go back to it. But it was such a fun time because, you know, we were all in it together. We were all trying to build this business, grow the company, and you could see the impact of your work within weeks. So it was a fun time. Gosh, so many stories. And so it wasn't really, it sounds like a, like Jack might have oversold how, how big, big we were a little bit, which is, you know, good, good job as a, as a CEO. And so was it more like you had to be more of like a player coach than you sort of expected? Like, were you actually running deals and kind of getting into the weeds with, with Seth and, and the rest of the reps? No, I think Seth and the team were so good at closing deals. So I was mostly learning about HR tech, learning about high velocity sales learning about inbound business. I think it was the first time I'd been at a company where there was actual inbound demand. And so coming in, I was like, what? There's just people coming to us wanting a demo? Like just what? This is weird. Yeah, it was different where I had, I was, I actually closed two deals on my own just to get some street cred with the team. And so a little bit of player coachy there, but my goal was to mostly learn about the market and the dynamics with our competitors and sort of how we were selling deals and you know, what are the growth paths that we could potentially take on? The first month I remember, I was like, oof, this is different, very different than coming from a Series E, you know, later stage, $120 million business to like, yep, here we are. 
those were fun times. I feel totally. like, did you start in the battery office or the house? Right. Office? The oh, battery, we had two battery right? offices. We're both- oh, yeah, we had the two battery offices. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say the 22 battery office with the infamous one bathroom. Yes. Yes, the one bathroom and the bathroom key. Oh my God. Yeah, we don't we don't need a, a TMI for, for this podcast. Um, but um, so you approached like learning was like your main goal, but I feel like once you got settled and you sort of got a sense of like the HR market and the team and you sort of accepted how early Lattice was, like what were your initial priorities? Like, do you remember kind of what your initial goals were? Yeah, I mean, I think obviously goal number one, two, three as a revenue leader is grow revenue. Like, how do we change the trajectory of of the new business growth? Uh, and, you know, obviously you and I were close in that. How do we sort of build this out together? And I quickly realized that there was so much opportunity. My mind was blown that there were some reps doing eight calls a day. And I was like, there is just so many leads. We're clearly in this like lead abundant environment, which means we've got to add a lot of capacity, make some real structural changes to the organization. You know, it's always hard when you're like the five reps that are getting all the leads and you're like, okay, we're going to double the team in the next three months. And so my first priority was we got to add capacity because clearly there is the market is there. We're seeing the demand and there's a ton of opportunity it just within the existing segment, which was, I think our ASP was what, let's say like three or 4,000 then. Yeah. Super. Like, yeah. Which was, <laughs> we were closing $800 deals. And I was like, why are we closing $800 deals? And the first priority was like, how do we increase capacity? Two, is there an opportunity for us to crawl up market? And three, is there an opportunity for us to like build the outbound muscle? Because clearly we'd gotten to that stage mostly, or I mean, let's say 99% through through inbound and the work the marketing team had done in creating that brand and the demand for us. So those are the three things I quickly realized that how can I take some of the things because I came from an outbound enterprise environment take some of those learnings and apply it to this. But I wanted to make sure that I did it in the right sort of HR tech, you know, in the lattice way versus just, you know, pattern match from our world because I've done that mistake. I've seen others make that mistake. I think that sounds right. And I think one of the big things you, you moves you made was like segmenting the sales team. Can you talk a little bit? I don't know how that helped both develop reps, but also help us move up market a little. Because when I joined, we were basically round robin, inbound leads. Everybody was selling all deals. And we wanted to double from five to 10 reps as quickly as we could. And we knew that if we went to that, we had to be thoughtful about how we grew demand in line with that capacity growth, but also hiring the right rep profile to match that growth. That way we weren't sort of just hiring generalists because we had a great team of generalists that were able to sort of stretch and do, you know, $2,000 deals and $10,000. That was the stretch back then. And so you're like, how do we now segment? And we knew that we were, you know, building the org, not for 10 reps, but how do we get to like 70 reps over the next few years? You know, a lot of sort of building the stack around scalable stack across sales, marketing ops, and then segmentation of saying, okay, we don't want to, a lot of times when people think about a market, they think about almost, you know, sort of saying, we're not going to focus on the business that got us here and only go up, like pivot. We didn't want to do that. Because we had a great business. And what we wanted to do is like slowly put bets in place that would allow us to continue to be in hyper growth. Because, you know, as a revenue operator, the way I think about my job is how do we just stay in the chaos of hyper growth? It's like we earn the right to get there once, but the harder part is 
How do we put the mini bets where we stay there year after year? The segmentation was such a key part of that. Building the stack was a key part of that, that allow us to really scale the engine and the operation. Cause you know, that's where like moving away from just the, you know, I'm the player coach and managing this team to like, Hey, we're building this revenue engine for a hundred million dollar business, not a $10 million business. Let's get into like the move up market a little bit. Cause you know, like the segmentation was like the first step. And then I thought the way you did it was really elegant where like we hired Val, right. To kind of do exploratory stuff for like a year. And then product was like trying to catch up and then, you know, it sort of, it evolved from there. Can you talk about kind of the evolution of us trying to experiment a market? Cause it was not just like we started and it was working right away. There was a lot of work that, that went into that. Yeah. A lot of blood, sweat and tears of a lot of people. Um, and yeah, I remember when, I think the reason we even decided up market, because I, I, we started closing these deals, I think it was Slack, which was the deal that we yeah. closed. And I was shocked. I was like, Slack wants to buy us. We haven't made any product investments, go to market investments. And here we are getting pulled up market because they evaluated you know, all the other solutions and picked us, which is like, okay, this is a sign. There's clearly something here and we've got to start seeding this. Um, and so, yeah, we hired Val, who's, you know, super experienced. She came on board. Luckily, we got lucky that she was like, yeah, I'll come do this and help build that out. And the goal was to just do customer discovery and learn from our existing, like the handful of large customers we had and some that we hadn't made the right sort of decisions in how we set them up and some that were a really good fit. And so how can we learn from both? and use that to design how we crawl up market. And I was like, I remember constantly correcting people, like we're not moving up market, we are crawling up market because it typically takes years to do, you know, move, go to outbound, move up market. And, you know, in startups, everything moves fast and you want the results next month or the next, you know, next quarter. And unfortunately, these moves, especially if you're not going to abandon your existing base, take so much longer. And so I remember constantly like reiterating to the company, to the board, which is like, we are crawling up market, which is going to take us a while. And like even getting the team okay with that, because it's hard being a salesperson, knowing that you're not going to get all the resources for this, you know, experimental segment that you're out doing discovery for. And we were lucky with great people. They were excited about that challenge of sort of testing it out and then putting the machinery around it. How did you think about the relationship between sales and sort of the other functional teams like in this move up market? Because, you know, it's like the product wasn't ready. So there was the sales team is like doing all this discovery and talking to customers and then they got to go back to the product team. And then you're coming back to me on the marketing side being like, how do we get more enterprise leads? Like, how did you think about managing all those different stakeholders? And I don't know what was challenging about it, what, what worked well? Yeah, I think that was maybe the, the most important piece, which is. How do we make sure that everyone recognizes that this is a company initiative and not just a sales initiative or a go-to-market initiative? I think a lot of companies sort of get that wrong where they're like, well, yeah, our product works. We've got five customers that are in this segment. Let's just put like a six-person sales team and it'll magically work. But the reality is like sales is the last piece. There's so much stuff that happens before that. And if you build a great sort of back-end machine that helps sales do their job well. And so I recognized, and I'd made these mistakes in the past, where sort of, you know, I was just focused on my team. 
versus thinking broadly across the company. And I really wanted to make sure that in this case, we were all clear-eyed, which was one of our lattice values around really focusing on doing it as a company. I remember going to Eric, a co-founder who ran product. And I was like, you got to build these you know, key enterprise features. And he's like, no, like, no, we're just not going to do it. Look at the revenue split. Why would I spend any time on this segment when we've got all these customers ask, and you know, it's, it was a fair pushback given the sort of resource constraint and the bandwidth constraint. And I had different versions of that with everyone across the different department heads. But I think ultimately folks got that long-term, if we want to become a hundred million plus dollar business, we can't just do it by focusing on what Jack was obviously super supportive of it, which helped. But yeah, a lot of sort of negotiating and seeing sort of, yeah, fine, we'll give up on that, but give us a couple resources to help us move, move, crawl up market. Yeah. I feel like Eric and the product team learned by like being put in the fire of what it meant to go up, up market. Like I remember, I won't say the customer, but I remember one customer tried to like run a review with like 10,000 people and it like clicked the button to send the performance review off and it like just didn't work because our backend system like, wasn't meant to, you know, send 10,000 emails at once. And I remember Eric and the team like staying up all night to fix that and, and get it out the door. And that was like a good, I think, moment for him where I was like, oh, yeah, like we do need to do a lot here to support these big enterprise customers. So, yeah. It's so true. I remember we would just bring and we learned that we just got to bring Eric on more prospect calls because it's like, hey, here's this large deal where everything matches except for this one little thing, which is considered table stakes. And of course, he's like, yeah, we can build that. And yeah, that was, it was so true. That was, that was the trick that eventually we learned. Yeah. No, honestly, it's get a CTO on the call and then tell them how much money they could make if they just build the thing and tell them that they can't do it. And then they'll go build it in like an hour uh, overnight <laughs> just to prove everybody else rock. Yeah. <laughs> so the HR market is incredibly competitive. You know, we had Reflective and CultureAmp and 15.5 and all the HRIS systems that we were competing with. And, Lattice was kind of this new kid on the block and we started in the SMB. We're slowly working our way up. And I'm curious, like, how did you think about competitive sales? How did you think about selling against all these competitors and how did that sort of play out over time? Gosh, yeah. I think in some ways, because I didn't know much about the space, it helped me. Like ignorance is bliss. So I came in and I was used to working in a super noisy market. Like I saw the sort of over the decade that I was selling to marketers. The, the evolution of you know all the noise, it sort of went through a ton of competitors, a lot of noise, and then it consolidated down to the big three. And so that helped sort of the context around, hey, the noise is, is a good thing when there's a lot of competition. That means there's a lot of money and there's a lot of opportunity for us to like grab market share. You know, it's tempting in those environments, especially if you have competitors that are sort of throwing dirt and saying, you know, giving seeding lies in market to prospects to play the game with them, right? Sort of get on their level. I'm a big believer of not giving competitors airtime in our show, which is like, hey, if a competitor, if a prospect asks about a competitor, we don't get down and say they suck at this, they suck at that, they, you know, here's the five things you're never going to get from them. Instead, we just focus on the things we do really well and really sell with integrity really care for the customer because ultimately like my core driving principle as a revenue leader is the number one thing we sell is the fact that we care. 
there's always going to be a competitor with a better brand or with more money or a better feature set. But sales and, you know, go to market overall can be a differentiator. And I think we really embraced that at Lattice where we were like, we're going to do things the right way. We're going to focus on the customer where we're going to really care about the customer and just build from there. And so I think just making sure that the team really embraced and internalized that sort of ethos of ultimately focus on the customer, focus on our product, but have the confidence, even though we were the new company on the block, where a lot of folks would be like, oh, Lattice, no, you don't want to work with them. And it's awesome to watch that over the years, we took a lead position through our execution and just focus on the customer and the market ultimately. But yeah, I remember it was early on, I was shocked at sort of the dirty games that some of the competitors would play, and we were able to rise above that. One of the smartest moves we made at Lattice was combining performance management and employee engagement in one platform. And we were kind of the first company to ever do that. We became this like multi-product company early in our life cycle. Can you talk about that moment and how did it help transform the company and impact kind of the sales team? Yeah, I remember that was like three months after I joined and we were making this big, you know, it was the first time we were doing a second product and we were getting feedback that like, are we distracting from our focus? Because we had a we had a great business selling performance management. And it's like, do we really want to move into this? And, you know, in hindsight, it was really smart strategic move and clearly became part of our core strategy of of releasing, you know, product velocity and releasing a new product um, every year or a couple of years getting the team across go-to-market to learn the product, which was, you know, new sort of use cases. I remember our CEO, Jay Zach, and I, we just sat in a conference room and we played trainer where everybody had to come in and do a mock pitch and get certified. And we just sat there for two days, hour after hour, and we would fail people. We'd be like, no, you got to go back and study because this wasn't good enough. Because we wanted to make sure that before launching this big product, it was a big moment in the company that we weren't on demo calls, not knowing sort of basic features and basic questions. But in hindsight, it was it was fun, but also such a waste of time. For two days, we were just locked up in this hot conference room. But then I think it became our playbook for every time we released a new product. It's like, this is how we certify the team. Here's the things we need to do across marketing, sales, success. And we learned, we got better every time. And I'm sure there's still things we could have done better in those moments. But yeah, big moment for us where we became that sort of multi-product company. And I remember thinking about, should we have a different team that just focuses, you know, product-specific teams, like have a team that's focused on engagement, have a team focused on performance, but the complexity and the upside just, I didn't think it was worth it. And it allowed us to really increase our contract sizes. It allowed reps to feel empowered to close bigger deals, make more money. And so I think it sort of aligned all the incentives to keep it with the sales team, at least early on. And I think it also like it made our competitors squirm too. Because it was crazy is like we launched that and then it was amazing to watch each of our competitors slowly build the same features and functionalities. And then all of our homepages and websites started to sort of merge on the same messaging and stuff. And it was like the first time I was like, oh, wow, this is like what leading a category shift actually feels like. And I still look back and I think that was like the smartest move that, you know, we can give, I guess we give Jack, the yeah. CEO credit for making, you know, that ultimate call. Cause I think it was a bold bet at the time where everyone was like, you have this thing that's working. You're really going to go multi-product that fast. And, you know, looking back, that's what launched 
lattice into sort of this next level company. And now there's a whole suite of product that they sell. It's pretty crazy. 100%. I mean, it's, and I remember if, as soon as we launched a new product, we'd see it increase in our win rates for nine months. And then we'd sort of, it, it would, it would normalize because the competitors would then catch up with our marketing and product messaging, or at least partly catch up. And so we knew, we learned that the first time. And then we were like, okay, we've got to be really prepared and make the most of this like 12 month, 24 month heads up that we get in this, in this race. Definitely a very smart move. Good job, Jack. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> so your superpower, I always thought, was building incredible sales cultures. Like your team loved you, and the vibes were always amazing. And I'd love to know, like, what's your your secret? Like, how do you think about building strong sales cultures? You know, this is the question that I tend to get the most. Which is, you know, this is outside looking in. It looks like you have a great culture, teams, and sort of tried to think about it because it's like, I don't think there is a secret here. It's like great teams. You know, I've always felt that great teams are built on a foundation of trust and accountability. And when I first started in sales, I remember being in a sales management meeting and like our manager was telling us something and everyone's like, yup, yup, we'll do that. And we all left the meeting and they're like, we're not going to do that. The reps were telling each other. I was like, why don't we just tell the manager that we're not going to do it? Like, why do we say yes in that room? And then walked out. Like, that's not cool to be part of this team where the manager is clearly putting all this thought into it. And we're going to say yes and then go do something completely different. And I knew that when I became a manager, I really wanted a culture where people would feel comfortable enough to voice opposing opinions and push back and give feedback. And so, like, I think they're built on, like, yes, accountability is key because you're in sales, we got to deliver revenue. But you also need trust where I can sort of give very direct feedback to someone. They can give feedback to me. And I think that happens through fostering psychological safety, where people feel comfortable being themselves, questioning the strategy, sharing the feedback, and then also being okay if like their feedback isn't taken. Like, it, you know, even if it doesn't get implemented, they have a voice, they don't have a vote. And so... How do you do that is, I think, mostly what I know how to do it is like just prioritizing values and culture in everything from who you hire, who you promote, your sales strategy, your performance management practices, your career tracks. Like we had values and culture in everything, in our monthly calls, in our weekly calls. We started with that. So everybody knew and I cared about it deeply. Where if somebody's tried to, you know, if there was like lack of integrity in how we sold, or if somebody was, you know, you're stealing someone's lead, like that would go, even when we were, you know, a hundred person team, it would go up to me and I'd be like, why is this happening? Like, we're all on the same team and we've got to embrace a culture of abundance because most sales team, unfortunately, are built on fear and scarcity, which is let's pit one person against another, one team against another one region against another. And I remember when I started in sales, I was like, this is just, I was crushing it. And I had my friends and teammates that weren't. And my manager was like, you can't help them because they're on a different team. I was like, this is silly. Like we're all on the same team and we're going against our competitors. And the goal is to grow the pie, not sort of just redivide the pie amongst ourselves. Because I think this applies to sales and marketing too. Like we have such a strong relationship where a lot of respect for all the work marketing did for sales. And I think marketing really cheered sales on 
knowing that, hey, ultimately you're going to go out and close the deal. So we're going to do everything to help you. And sort of sales recognized that they couldn't do it on their own and we needed marketing. So I think it sort of all goes back to the same thing of like respect, you know, the values are key, embracing a culture of abundance. You also did such a good job, like injecting just energy and creating a fun environment. You also are like a meme maker, I feel like within a sales team. There's so many little catchphrases you came up with that just like, and they're all funny and get people excited. And like, I wish we could show one of your presentations because there's so many hashtags and things, but like, and it's all like funny, but it got people excited and created this sort of vibe on the team. Like one team, one dream, right? That was like the marketing and sales thing. And then I'm going to butcher this, but like sick, right? It was always your, your catchphrase and like became such a thing. And then Luke on the design team was just making Dini memes and things. And so I don't know. It's like you were, you just did such a good job, like creating such a unique culture. It was really fun, fun to watch. I think it's just fun yeah. to do it. It's like, yeah. you know, we're going to do this hard thing of building this company and startups are hard. Lack, you know, you don't have a lot of resources and bandwidth and might not have some fun with it. But oh gosh, the yeah. memes. Friday, by day. We had automated yeah, gifts in Slack that were like, would give me nightmares because it would show up so many times. Gosh, fun times. I forgot about that one too. My God. So you've hired like hundreds of salespeople, maybe thousands in your career. What makes a great sales rep? And like, what do you look for usually in the hiring process? Yeah, I think um, hiring such a key. It's like, that's where it all starts. Like hiring the right team for the right sort of, you know, the matching the company and the market to the team. I think the, the things that I've consistently seen, like broadly work, there's sort of nuances within the business, like the persona, like the HR persona is very different than the marketing persona or the sales persona. And so I think there's nuance to like, what is the best sales rep for this specific persona? So that is sort of outside of that. I think it's curiosity, integrity, and grit. Like those are the three qualities that uniformly matter a lot more, I think matter a lot more than some of the other things that people get fixated on, on like pattern matching resumes. Like our first, I think 15 folks in sales, 15, 20 folks, I want to say, had no HR tech experience. It's like people from all different backgrounds. And I think that helped us because we didn't limit ourselves to like, what you know, this is what we've done before. So this is what we're going to do. We were all sort of learning together and we were like, let's just try and see where this takes us. And it helped us you know, be creative and innovate. But yeah, I think going back to the sales reps, it's curiosity, integrity, and grit. I'd love to switch gears and talk a little bit about like the personal development of a salesperson over time. Because I think there's like a huge difference between closing a deal, right, as an AE and then managing a sales team as a sales manager versus being a director of sales versus being a VP and then eventually a CRO. And I'd love to like think about these different stages. Like, how do you, what do you see as sort of the major differences? And I think maybe it's more obvious between AE and manager, but then maybe it gets a little blurry as you sort of move up in sales leadership. So yeah, how do you think about it changing over time? Totally. I think the AE and the man- manager one is probably one of the bigger jumps. And I almost think about it as parallel tracks. I think a lot of companies set it up where like, oh, you're an AE, you crush your quota. Next step is become a manager. And I think that's just wrong consistency in getting to quota and following process and and being a good team player does, but getting to 200% doesn't really tell me anything. And so I've always had manager and sort of the senior AE at different tracks. And so I think it is different. And we had a team lead program, if you remember, where folks could test it 
And we had folks like Seth, who was, you know, an early sales rep. And he was a team lead. And he was like, I love it because it was meant to give reps exposure into management tasks and see if they actually like it. And so he did it for a quarter and he's like, I love it. This is what I want to do. And we promoted him into a manager. And then we had Haley Wolf, who was also an AE and said, I want to be a manager. And she became a team lead. She did it for a couple of quarters. And she's like, oh, I don't know. I like selling. I want to keep selling because I have my autonomy. And so it was a great, it was a great sort of way for people to sort of test the waters of what management meant. And sort of the biggest difference, you know, in each of those levels is like your level of control continues to reduce, but your level of accountability continues to increase. It's a really weird thing to to manage your own psyche against. Like when I was a rep, I had full control of my book of business. How am I going to get to my number? What do I do? Like I can control every piece of it. Became a manager. Then I have to, you know, I've sort of focused on my team and hope that they get to their number so I get to mine. And the higher up you go, it it just, you've got more and more accountability. Ultimately, I'm on the hook if we don't make our revenue number in front of the board but I can't really make deals happen. And sort of the reality is the team is doing all the work and I'm just here facilitating and making sure that they have the right resources and the right sort of setup to be successful. So I think that is the hardest part for people to jump from every level. And at the C-level, it's like you're a company leader. So let's say I'm a VP of sales right now and I want to be a CRO. Like what advice would you give to me? Like, how do I prove that I am CRO worthy? Is it thinking through like other functions like customer success and marketing and trying to understand those? Is it just getting better at sales? Like, yeah, what advice do you give to a VP of sales who wants to be a CRO? Yeah, I think um, it, that is the part where it starts to get blurry. But my advice would be focusing on the company as a general company leader versus as a sales leader. Like you're always going to be the sales leader. Like that's in your DNA. If you've grown up in sales, you'll always sort of think about how do you grow revenue? How do you focus on getting to highest attainment? But how do you really understand all the different pieces that have to go right for, for sales to do well? And so, yeah, it's becoming a general company leader where you could uh, theoretically go run any department. Uh, because you've got the sort of, you understand the different mechanics of how departments work, you're strategic. And so I think that is the key piece where you have, and you know, I think as the team grew, I spent less and less time with sales as a CRO and more and more time with other departments. Like my first team was the exec team and making sure that, you know, the customer journey is uniform. Like you are as a revenue leader of the company. You're the single point of accountability for all things growth and revenue, regardless of your purview, regardless of, you know, what you formally own, it's ultimately you're accountable. And if, if that is too much, then a VP of sales, like you're responsible for your team's number, your region's number, and making sure that that is executed well. But as a revenue operator, you're thinking two years ahead and saying, how do I make sure that we're setting ourselves up to continue growing, not just this year's plan, but also next year, like what are the bets I'm seeing? So I think you're sort of the focus, you know, as a VP of sales, I'm probably thinking one or two quarters ahead. As a CRO, you have to think one or two years ahead. That is the biggest difference, I'd say. And let's talk about that exec team and kind of managing up because so much of your job is working with the CEO and the board and like 
and the CFO and building a plan. And then you have to communicate your progress along the way. And then you have to, you know, show the forecast and all that. Can you just like give us a window into what that experience was like? Oh gosh, so fun. <laughs> that became bigger and bigger part of my job over time. And I think that is, there's a lot of art and science to it. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things where you have to have all these different pieces come together where it's very grateful to have a great finance team that was helping us sort of put the pieces together. And on the flip side, we had ops and us sort of coming in and saying, here's, you know, the top down plan, the bottoms up plan and what feels realistic. Um, I still remember my first board meeting where I think it was just like four or five of us. And I came from, you know, my past companies, board meetings were a big deal. We were Kleiner Sequoia backed. And so we were, you know, very buttoned up. And I was like, I remember my first lattice board meeting. It was it was awesome. We were just eating croissants and talking about the business. <laughs> and then of course over time it evolved. And I think going through a pandemic and <laughs> moving all the sort of things that have happened in the last three years, our planning cycles almost became from going from annual cycles to we were almost it felt like we were doing it quarterly because things were changing so rapidly. But so much of planning is sort of seeing both sides negotiating and saying, hey, what feels realistic? I get that the spreadsheet says this. Here's the reality on the ground on what it takes to execute that spreadsheet to getting the team to buy in and do this in a reasonable time frame without hurting culture. Because the other piece is like you can grow too fast and short term it may work. And long term, you've overhired capacity, you don't have enough leads, um, and it causes all kinds of problems. And so my job again was to sort of bridge that gap between the board expectations, finance view, point of view, and of course our point of view from the go-to-market is like, hey, here's what we can actually get done. And then communicating that to every person so people sort of internalize and understand why we're doing this and why it matters. And I feel like every board member always wants to increase the numbers and move faster and hire more sales reps. And you look at the spreadsheet and you're like, wait, you have five sales reps? Why don't you go to 10 and you'll hit your number faster? And like, I'm curious how you emotionally process that as a sales leader, because that's stressful. Like, right. And Lattice was pretty successful. Like the whole time we, we were there, but like it was always more and more and more. And it's, so, yeah, how do you like emotionally handle that? Is it just like take a deep breath and deal with it or what, what's your take? Line. <laughs> Yeah, a lot of wide. Good. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, it's like, I think that's the, you know, sometimes it can feel like, well, if we don't do well, there's clearly a lot of heat you take. It's the highest accountability role. Like, ultimately, you're on the hook to deliver revenue. There's no excuses. You know, the buck stops at you. But on the flip side, when you do well, it's like, well, why aren't we, are we too, you know, why is our attainment 100%? It should be 80%. And we early on, we really wanted to keep our attainment high for cultural reasons to build that foundation of winning, which, you know, is hard because the sort of the traditional way of thinking is do 80% attainment and make sure that you have more people capacity. And even if 20% of them aren't hitting quota. And so how do I cope? Mostly wine. So I think we were a pretty good team together, me and you, you know, running marketing and sales. And I feel like we didn't fight really like most marketing and sales teams do. Like looking back, what, why do you think that was? What made it work? I mean, I think we we had such a good, it never felt, we were all on the same team. And I think people said that all the time, like one team, one dream. I remember reps would join and it's like, because it goes back to like, no finger pointing. Like we are all in this together and we're going to focus on how do we grow this pie versus, you know, the traditional sort of MQL versus SQL. 
I even remember early on, we didn't talk about attribution for for the first few years, which traditionally everybody's like, well, focus on your attribution and really get it right. We were like, we're just going to grow the business because we know even for outbound, we knew that we couldn't get to outbound unless marketing was out there, you know, marketing to these folks quarters ahead, years ahead, right? To create that sort of air cover. And so I think that sort of philosophy and kudos to Jack for giving us that autonomy to just sort of focus on building the business versus like getting over-focused on, you know, sort of resourcing and attribution and where does the budget go? And I think that really helped us in in building it together. And yeah, I, I think that was the fun, that was the most fun part because we didn't do it the sort of traditional SaaS way. We just did it our way. And people came on and they were like, wait, is this outbound? Well, typically in traditional sense, this is not how outbound is defined. But we were growing the business. Ultimately, that was the testament. It was like we're 3Xing and 2Xing. And I think that was a lot to do with the folks you hired, the folks we had on the sales team. And I think you and I being completely aligned in our focus on growing business. And I love that you and the marketing team had so much accountability to revenue, which wasn't typical. But I love that. Like when revenue was down, I knew you were stressed as I was stressed. <laughs> like you weren't like, oh, I'm going to go focus on something else. You're like, no, we got to grow revenue and I'm stressed. What do we do? So I think that really helped because we had each other's backs. Yeah. I think we yeah, had my mentality the whole time was just how could Lattice be successful? I didn't really care about whether it was marketing or sales and how we sort of get there. And like, yeah, companies, it's funny you mentioned that. Yeah, companies spend so much time just counting the beans and tr- spend so much process trying to figure out who goes what. And like, I think we were early to understanding like the B2B buyer journey is not just linear. It's not just outbound or inbound. It's probably both. And like the outbound person saw a marketing thing and then the outbound person came inbound later. And it's like, you just end up fighting about like literally nothing. Yeah. Um, you know, it's like, it's funny how what, what companies trip themselves up. Switching gears to like building a career in sales, especially as, as, a, as a woman, you know, there's a huge gender and diversity gap in tech. And you know, as a woman in tech yourself, who's risen to a CRO and, and C-suite, I'm curious like, what advice you give to other women in sales and, and more broadly, like, who, who want the same things sort of you've, you've got it. What advice would you give? Yeah, I think it's hard to get advice because I think it's so personal. I remember when I first moved into management, that's when I realized that there is this huge gap. Because when I was a rep, there was like, you know, enough women on the on the floor and it didn't feel like the gap existed. Move into management and I was like, wow, I'm I'm like one or two women on so many calls. And the higher you go, it was, you know, 90% of the time, it was like, you're the only woman on every call. And over time, you like, I don't even notice it anymore. But, and the representation gap is real. But I think having, for me, having a strong why around why I'm doing this, like has always sort of kept me going. Because when I first moved into me, when I was a rep and I became successful, I was like, I'm never doing any other job. This is amazing. I make a lot of money. I can get my job done in five hours a day. Like, why would I do anything else? And then at some point I was like, I love coaching other people. And so management became much more enticing to me. And so I did that. And I was like, this is awesome. I've got my team. I've got my culture. Why would I do anything else? And then over time, I was like, if I really want to change how sales orgs are built from the ground up, I've got to have a bigger seat at the table. You know, I can be this manager and be happy in what I'm doing, but I really want to help change the game of how sales orgs are built. And so that became my why for almost a decade. It was helpful in moments of where I was like, do I really want to do this? Like, 
So I think having a strong why, like why you're doing something really served me. And I didn't know every 18 months, I was like, am I enjoying this? Yes, no. What am I enjoying? How do I do more of that? Like I wasn't someone who knew early I wanted to be CRO or even management. And, you know, I think that surprises people because everyone's like, I knew I wanted to be CRO. And I'm like, I wasn't that person where building a sales org where a younger me would have felt like I was having more fun. I was feeling, I felt more comfortable being myself. And yeah, I hope more women continue to embrace sort of what makes them special and their why and run their own race. So you're a free agent right now. You're not actually leading a a sales org, but things are really weird in in the economy and in SaaS today. It's very different than, you know, when it was like building Lattice, there's a slowdown across the board. And, you know, if you were leading a sales team, I'm curious, like how you would approach it. How do you think this all changes sales and how do you keep sales teams motivated in today's environment? Yeah, I talked to a lot of founders and sales leaders that are sort of battling on the front lines with their teams in this environment. And I remember when I you know, first started in management, which was like right after the 2008 bubble. And it was, it was hard because there's a lot of sort of risk aversion in market by buyers and you know, there's more scrutiny on deals. And as a salesperson, you're used to getting rejected 80% of the time. And now it's like, even the 20% of the time you have to, the bar is much, much higher. And so how do you keep a sales team motivated through it? I think the one piece of advice that, you know, I've made this mistake where when things are tough as a sales leader, you want to make all the changes all the time. Where you're like, let's do these three things and then let's change our sales process and let's change our messaging and then let's change the org structure because you think that that's the way to drive progress. Whereas it's just action. In my opinion, it's just action for the sake of it. And sometimes the best thing you can do for your team is be patient, be confident, and just reiterate why they've joined this company, why this company is great, why they're a great salesperson selling this thing and getting them to believe. Um, And I think we need more sales leaders being like chief inspiration officers versus you know, just focusing on the on the business and the metrics because the team really need that. Like you're taking on all these, it's easy to feel defeated, especially remotely. You're sitting in your home office getting losses. So I have, you know, a lot of advice that I give sales leaders out there today is like make less changes, ignore the noise because there's so much out there where you're like, I should do product-led growth. I should do something else. I should, you know, not have a VDR team. And it's like, no, just... Trust the process, focus on your business, create the plan and just, you know, sort of be the inspirational leader that brings energy to your team because they really, really need it in this environment. Well, thank you so much for the wonderful conversation, Dini. It's been really fun looking back on on our lattice time together. If people want to find you, where's the best place for them to reach out? LinkedIn or yep. somewhere else? Yeah, yeah. LinkedIn's probably the LinkedIn best thought place leader. to find me. Love it. Love it. Well, thank you so much, Dini. That's a wrap on another episode of Grow and Tell. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe to us on YouTube or your favorite podcast platform, or find every episode at growandtellshow.com. I'm your host, Alex Krakow. Thank you for listening.